0: Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears, Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh.
1: So I can remember a... uh, uh over the last several years, I've had this recurring pattern. I've been introducing my kids to various movies that um, I loved as a kid, and I'm watching them with them again, and I'm finding my perspective is changing because I'm in a different season of life. I can remember not too long ago watching E.T. with them, and I Got really concerned, like realized at one point I was thinking about the mother in e t as a single mother, and I was started my mind was wandering to friends and family that have gone through the whole challenge of single parenting and, and so I was working through all of that all this is going on and then and then later on, I was thinking these kids are they keep taking these bike rides out to the woods, and i 'm thinking about supervision and the lack thereof and all these concerns that I've got floating through my mind, and I'm realizing this, I'm, just, I'm just watching this movie differently than I watched it when I was eight years old. Something has changed for me. It's that perspective that changes. I think it's happened a few years ago. I had this moment where I realized as a Star Wars fan, I crossed over the Obi-Wan threshold, which is to say that I realized I was closer in age to Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original Star Wars than I was to Luke Skywalker. So that's like a key moment in my life. So I'm now identifying with a very different character. I'm identifying with the weak old man instead of the starlit young teenager. Um, So it's a perspective shift. Joni Mitchell sang about this quite brilliantly her song, Both Sides Now. I'm seeing life from both sides now. It's that perspective, the perspective that we bring as we read or watch or encounter a story shifts for us. It changes over time, and we find ourselves maybe drawing different lessons from these stories, depending on the perspective. Well, in Genesis 41, this is a picture that invites us to consider some different perspectives. There's some different characters that are quite vivid in in the story here in Genesis 41 that I think are worth dwelling on and thinking about, but depending on your perspective, it's going to lead you to some different ends or conclusions as you think about the story. If you don't have your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to open up one. It's a fairly long chapter. Um, and in the length of the chapter there is a lot going on. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the PUC in front of you. I encourage you to open to Genesis forty one and along. But when you open up the story, when you open up the story of Genesis forty one, you've got um, you've got this. Um, so in Genesis forty one, you've got this interesting beginning. And really, it's a story that begins around the theme of power. Before we get to the story of Joseph, we start with the story of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world. He's the ruler of Egypt, the most powerful person in the land. And the story opens with him dreaming. But in in that opening section, really the first eight verses that Jack just read for us, I would suggest to you that there are two words of power that show up that we might not think of as words of power, and they get repeated over and over. That repetition is a key to understanding the story. The first is the word Nile. Well, Nile's not a word of power. That's a word of geography. The Nile is a river in Egypt. Seems simple enough, right? Well, it, kept, it keeps showing up. It shows up four times in the first three verses. Everything about this dream is about the Pharaoh dreaming as he's standing at the Nile and he sees these cows come out of the Nile and the the attractive cows are there. There's seven of those and then these seven ugly cows come out and they eat up the others at the Nile. And it's over and over you hear the word Nile. Well, because the Nile is not just a river in Egypt, it is the river in Egypt. The Nile is the source of life and power for Egypt. It is the river that supplies all of their water, all of their life, all of the abundance. It is the separation for them. Uh, they, they build things in Egypt on the east, they bury people in the west, and they, they bury them based on where they're positioned in relation to the Nile, because the, the, the way west of the Nile is the way of death. If, about many years ago, I had a chance to, to visit Egypt and spent several days sailing on the Nile, and it was fascinating to me as I would watch. There's times where you'd see all this lush greenery right alongside, and knowing that there's desert on either side, but there's times where you would see that desert come down just within a few feet of the river, and especially to the west, you would know that that is the beginning of the Sahara Desert, and you would literally have thousands of miles of desert before you would see water again, before you'd see anything. There was, the, the, the lifeblood of Egypt is the Nile, that is their source of life, and it is the source of power for Pharaoh. The Pharaoh's power, as much as he says he's the most powerful person in the world, his power comes from that river. So when he's dreaming of the Nile suddenly being a place of vulnerability, you see that something dangerous is happening. Two things there. They got the other word is the word seven. And again, it shows up again and again throughout this, these dreams. You've got the seven cows, seven pretty cows, the seven ugly cows. You've got these seven um, ears of grain. You've got the, the good grain and the bad grain. You've got seven over and over again. I think something like seven times in the first seven verses. Well, seven is a divine number. It's a number that kind of stands in for God. It has a link in Genesis to creation. We think of the seven days of creation. And maybe in that, you've got this pairing or this, this war of power going on. You've got Pharaoh dreaming of something that's going on that's really pitting his power against divine power, and we're going to see that spelled out for him in the verses to come. But what are, the key is, when you come out of these first eight verses that Jack read for us, you, you've got the most powerful person in the world— being reduced to a place of vulnerability. The powerful is vulnerable. His life is fragile. The life of Egypt is fragile. All of a sudden, this is that powerful person who's having a heart attack, or you know, the most powerful person in the room suddenly is in a place where they can't do anything. That's not something Pharaoh's used to. Pharaoh speaks, people listen, people act, they respond. Pharaoh is worshiped as a god by many of these people. He's used to being in charge, He's used to having his way, but now this dream of these seven attractive cows being eaten up by the seven thin, ugly cows and the seven plump grains of uh, stalks being chewed up by the seven uh, weak uh, grains, it leaves him in a real odd place. Verse 7, Pharaoh wakes and beho- he says, Behold, it was a dream, which is to say this dream is so, these dreams are so vivid for him that he he really thought he wasn't dreaming. He thought this was real. And in verse 8, in the morning, his spirit is troubled. We've heard that before. We saw that in the last chapter, in chapter 40, when Joseph, in prison, was interpreting dreams for the cupbearer and the baker. They, too, were troubled by their dreams. Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world, is troubled, and so he assembles all of those who serve him to interpret, and they can't do anything. There was none, verse 8, there was none who can interpret them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is powerless. His initiative is taken away. He can't act now. He can't do what he wants to do. So he's being placed by losing his initiative. Now, Pharaoh is in a position of need. The powerful is now powerless. That's what he has been reduced to here in these opening verses. Now, that's an interesting contrast here, because where we just left chapter 40, we've, we've been following the story of Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, left for dead, then sold into slavery, making his way to Egypt. While being honored, he keeps getting treated with injustice, and so he is thrown into prison. He remains in prison, even as he interprets dreams for one who lives. He is forgotten. Two whole years have passed. Joseph is in the place of powerlessness and vulnerability, and now in these opening verses here, the most powerful person in the world is also placed in a place of vulnerability. Pharaoh has a need, and what's going to answer that need? Well, what's going to answer it is nothing less than a resurrection verse 9, kind of follow through 36, kind of the big central section of this story, you're going to see this, this dreamer reborn. This is the story, in a sense, of a kind of resurrection of Joseph. And it starts in verse 9 with a key word. The chief cupbearer remembers. He says, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with me as with his servants and put me in the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When he told him, we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted it to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. That word though, that sets it all in motion is I remember. The, 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 the writer passes by with a, with a single verse all of the story of the, the magicians and the wise men of Egypt who are powerless to interpret this dream, and then deals with, in detail, this cupbearer remembering Joseph and his, his ability as an interpreter of dreams. That word, remember. As I mentioned last week, that's the word of God remembering someone. Um, Joseph pleaded with the cupbearer to remember him, and he forgot him. He's been left in prison now for another two years, waiting on somebody to remember him. In the the story of the flood, it was God remembering Noah that sets in motion the receding of the waters, uh, and Noah coming out on dry land. Um, God remembers. God sets his mind on somebody, and good things start to happen. Here, it is the cupbearer that remembers him. And all of a sudden, this prisoner, left for dead, languishing in this prison, is remembered. And verse 14 is brought to life again. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And notice that language. That's vivid imagery of what's going on here. He's brought out of the pit, out of, out of the, a place of death. He is brought to life. He's shaved, changed his clothes, and all of a sudden he's cleaned up and made presentable to stand, not just before anybody, but before the most powerful person in the world. That's a turnaround. And it's another kind of resurrection, just as he has experienced it before, that, that though he keeps being left for dead and left aside, God is doing something in Joseph's life. He's left in a pit, and he's brought out of the pit to be sold into slavery. Uh, in, that, in that place of slavery, he experiences blessing, oddly enough. But then he experiences betrayal, and he keeps going lower and lower. Well, that low point is now past. And now we're seeing this elevation begin as God begins to fulfill the purposes that he has for Joseph's life. And so what does he do in this moment? As he's brought out of the pit and he stands before him and Pharaoh says to him, verse 15, I've had a dream, there's no one who can interpret it. I heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Here's his moment, grand moment in the sun. The most powerful person in the world is saying, you've got abilities that I need. Joseph, if he were a smart man, he'd share his resume. He would tell all the great things that he can do. Really, try to sell himself because he does not want to go back in that pit. But what does he do? Verse 16, I think it's a really important verse in this whole chapter. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. In that moment, he is using his his position to witness. What does he want Pharaoh to know? It's not how great Joseph is, but how great his God is. He wants him to know right in that moment that God is the source of his power, strength. God is the one who's given him the dream. God will give Joseph the interpretation. He remains faithful in that place of just real desperation. Here's your moment. Here's your chance to save yourself. He uses that moment to witness. The dreamer remains faithful. God will give. His very first words spoken here are words of evangelism. Now, delicately, I think, he's using the word God. That's translation, that's the word Elohim, uh, not the Lord, a lot of your translations would be, which is the word Yahweh. The, the Yahweh would be the personal name. Elohim is a little more neutral. Uh, he's trying to help Pharaoh understand something that Pharaoh's not built to understand, which is that there is a God of the universe and it's not Pharaoh. He's beginning to witness to him. So he remains faithful. So then he tells him, and this is, we actually have three times in this chapter that we get these pair of dreams told. You think they want us to focus on these dreams? But he explains it all to him, gives it all the same thing. And, he, and, and verse 24, he gets it and says, I told it to the magicians, there are no one who can explain it to me. And again, just like last chapter, just like chapter 40, where Joseph was explaining the dreams to the cupbearer and then to the baker, there's no hesitation, there's no, let me go away for a day or two, and let me think of an answer for you. It's immediate. And what does he tell him? First, verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. This is all about the same thing. You've got the pair of dreams, but they're pointing you to the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So these dreams are about God's determined purpose, that picture of that battle between the word Nile and the word seven. God's doing something, and you, Pharaoh, are powerless against it. The most powerful person in the world is at the mercy of the real power in the world, of the God of this universe. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do, And so then he explains them. These seven good cows are seven good years, and the seven bad cows are seven bad years. There's a famine coming. You're going to have seven years of abundance, then you're going to have seven years of famine. And that's the same thing. That's what the ears, the stalks, all the grain, that's the same thing. Seven good years are coming, and then followed by seven bleak, hard famine years of famine. At verse 28, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Sounds like almost the same thing that he said in verse 25. Again, he repeats himself. That pairing drives home his message. God's going to do this. God is going to do it. Um, the, the famine, verse 30, how bad is it going to be? The famine will consume the land. And all of this repetition, I've, I've talked to last week and again this week, you have a lot of pairs in the story of Joseph. Well, what are, Why do we have all these pairs? Why does he keep telling us the same thing twice? Why do we have a dream after dream? A pair of dreams, a pair of dreams. Well, verse 32 gives you your answer. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. When we see that doubling here, I think he's giving us something of insight as the way way he's writing the story. We keep hearing these things repeated twice because it reminds us that this is God doing something, and God is going to get his way. God is going to accomplish what he sets out to do. That doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that it's fixed. God will bring it about. And then it's really about how is he going to respond. So if you just stop there in verse 32— you're at a place where God has purposed something that will have some good years and then some really, really bad years, and Pharaoh is in a place where he needs help. The most powerful person in the world needs a hand. He's not used to that. And then verse 33, without any prompting, without any request from Pharaoh, Joseph moves from interpreter to advisor. And in that moment, he begins to give him some kind of path of deliverance. Um, Verse 33, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And he gets to describe all this, all of his plan of how he would set aside and prepare for the famine that is coming. It's certain it is going to happen, but that doesn't mean you can't do anything about it. I actually think there's some good theology there that the fact that God is sovereign, God is in charge, God is doing exactly what he wants to do, doesn't lead Joseph to a place of passivity, but into activity. He is actively responding to the determined purposes of God. And it actually leads him to prepare to bring life. Well, what's the response? The response is nothing less than this dreamer, just a few moments ago a prisoner, forgotten by all, now rises to a place of power. Verse 37, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Everybody's happy with Joseph. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now think about that. Think about that response for a moment. Um, his, Joseph has given his dreams before. When he told his brothers his dreams, his brothers the sons of Jacob, the children of promise, promised by God to be blessed and do wonderful things through. You know, the sons of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all this great history. The sons listened to the dreams of Joseph. They could understand what he meant by them, and they hated it. They despised the dreams. They, inspired, they despised the purposes of God, and they looked in, at Joseph in horror and wanted to kill him. Here, Pharaoh, this you know, self-appointed divine leader of Egypt, the most powerful guy in the world, looks at Joseph and he sees the Spirit of God at work. Pharaoh had more spiritual insight than Joseph's family. He saw more in him in that moment than the people that should have known better. And that's part of the larger story that's going to be going on in Joseph's life, is how he's going to be interacting with his own brothers here in the future. They, they need something of what Pharaoh has here, which is as he responds to this, he sees God's man before him. And so what does he do? He says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And so Joseph now becomes elevated uh, into the halls of power. He becomes the number two over the kingdom. And, and see here in the verses that follow, if you read in detail, what you're seeing is the making of an Egyptian. It's really quite fascinating. What does he do? Verse uh, verse uh, 42, he, well, he tells everybody, this is what I've done. I've set you over all the land of Egypt. And then he takes, verse 42, he takes his ring, this Egyptian ring, from the hand of Pharaoh and puts it on him. He clothes them in these Egyptian garments Takes this Egyptian chain and puts it around his neck. He has him ride in this Egyptian chariot. And he even gives him an Egyptian name as everyone bows before him. Gives him an Egyptian name in verse 45 and an Egyptian wife. He's making an Egyptian. And you would think you could see Joseph being kind of excited about that. Maybe he could just embrace this new identity and just say, you know, I'm now an Egyptian. I'll just take the name, I'll own it, I'll get a lot of time in the sun so I can get a good tan, so maybe I can just pass for one of these guys, I'll learn that, maybe I'll fake the accent, I'll just let it go. But something else happens there. Because then it has what maybe at first glance seems to be kind of an interlude. Um, it says, verse 46, there's, first there's a little comment, I think it's worth noting, that Joseph was 30 years old. When he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which is to say this journey that he's had from being an attempted kill by his, attempted murder by his brothers to second in command has been 13 years. It's 13 years of suffering, 13 years of hardship, 13 years where he has spent many, many days with absolutely nothing to do except to stare at a wall and wonder if God had forgotten him. There's a lot of places along the way that he could have walked away from his faith. A lot of times along those 13 years where you could say, I think God just said, I've got other purposes. But God's timetable is not our timetable. We want patience and we want it now. (laughs) We want to be blessed and we want it now. Um, God takes his time. and Sometimes it's 13 years in a prison. Sometimes it's 40 years wandering in the desert as Moses, the writer of this thing, would have experienced himself. There's a lot of different stories that he takes us on. And a a lot of times it takes longer than we think. But He has, um, he's 30 years old, and he goes out, and then he has sons. Verse 50. Uh, He's doing the job that Pharaoh set him out to do, but then it records the names of these two sons. The two names are significant. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Now, we can misunderstand that if we want to. It sounds like, well, is he just saying, I'm just no longer one of Jacob's sons? No, There's a picture here where he is making peace that while he once suffered, God has blessed him again. And so in Manasseh, he is remembering God uh, taking notice of him and God blessing him even in the midst of his suffering. Joseph is moving past the years of hardship and the years of suffering. Um, Similarly, his second born, verse 52, Ephraim, he says, For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And I think it is the land of his affliction. It's not his home even while he wears the the garments and has the ring and the chain and all the power, it's still other for him. It's still not where he needs to be. So, he's faithful. And in that season of success, Joseph is faithful as much in his success as he was in his suffering. He's, He's seeking to be a follower of God in all seasons of his life. All of those years of suffering have prepared him for this moment so that when he is being blessed, when he's experiencing success, he remembers who he is, that he really is a child of the Father. He is a child of God. And what does he do with all of that? Okay, so the seven years of plenty, verse 53, the seven years of plenty came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. What does he do? God raises up Joseph first to save Egypt. He is providing life for the people of Egypt. That's, that's Joseph's purpose. He is blessing that pagan nation. It's his first role there is not to bless Israel. It's not to go bless his own. It's to bless that world that he's in, the place that he's in. He provides life for them, for the Egyptians, and ultimately... He is providing life for the world. Something significant is happening. That that, Joseph, that God is using Joseph to save the world through his, faithful, his faithfulness. God is using him in an extraordinary way. What do you do with all of that? Well, there's, there's one thing I want you to see is... Um, the way that the sovereignty of God is on display in the story. God is sovereign. God is king. God is the ruler. God is in charge. What, one of the themes of this is that, that God um, is ruling over nations and leaders and over the lives of his children. That's the first thing we get out of this, is that the, we see this celebration here in chapter 41 of the sovereignty of God. Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, is subject to God. Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world, is subject to God. All of them are completely powerless against God. God's purposes win all the time. God gets his way. Uh, We can first acknowledge that sense of sovereignty uh, and and really, like Joseph, bow before it. What Joseph is is on a journey from suffering to success. Both the suffering and the success were given him by God, for God's own good purposes, so we can learn to trust that purpose of God at work in our lives. The second thing I want you to see in that is how Joseph is anticipating Jesus. He's showing us a lot of the gospel displayed. This is a very unique chapter. It is, uh, We've talked over the last month, we've talked about the offices of the church, the idea of elders and deacons. Um In the Old Testament, there are three offices that they talk about. The prophet, the priest, and the king. And and, and this is a unique chapter in that Joseph, in a way, is serving all three roles. And in doing so, is giving us a picture of what Jesus is going to be for us. What is the gospel? Well, here, Joseph is first, he is a prophet. He He is speaking the word of the Lord before Pharaoh. He is delivering him the message of what God is up to and what is God going to do in the world. He is serving as prophet. He is also, in a sense, serving as priest. Because what a priest does in the Old Testament is stand in the gap between God and man. That, that the priest is in the place where he is inner, He's the mediator. He is the one telling uh, uh, the, the, the person what God is up to and, and can be that bridge. Joseph is serving that bridge there. He is serving as priest, and ultimately he's a picture of king. He is the ruler. He is put in charge. And if you want to see that in terms that may, maybe make you think of Jesus, it is that this resurrected, favored son is appointed prophet, priest, and king in order to bring salvation to the world, which is what Joseph does in chapter 41. He is anticipating what Jesus is doing as the resurrected son. God uh, accepted that sacrifice that Jesus gives for us. He dies and is resurrected in order that in that resurrection that he can bring life to the world. That we can have our sins forgiven. That we can be in a relationship with the God of the universe because of God's good grace and mercy given to us through Jesus Christ. Joseph is anticipating that ministry by being God's resurrected son, serving as prophet, priest, and king, and bringing salvation to the world by opening up up the storehouses for the world. And that's the third thing I want you to see, is that God is using Joseph's faithfulness to bless the world. He is saving the world through his faithfulness. And I talked at the beginning that we can see different perspectives. How do we see, how should we see this story? Well, in a sense, we are both here with Joseph. We are both recipients of that grace. We are the world here. Um, but we are also called to model ourselves after Joseph. Joseph is a picture of Christ, and Christ is both our Savior and also our example to follow. We follow him where he leads. We live under the grace of Christ, and we express that grace as his children. God's sovereign hand here is leading his people uh, to, the, to, to, to be a blessing to the world. Um, and he's calling the world to come. Uh, it's the blessing of redemption that is being offered to all who come to the storehouse for life. Maybe that's what we need to see here. You can ask yourself, do you see yourself in chapter 41? Do you see yourself as Egypt, as Pharaoh, as Joseph, or the world? If you see yourself as Egypt or Pharaoh, you can remind yourself to trust God's sovereign care through God's chosen son. Trust his care. God is in charge. You can trust him. Trust his chosen son. If you see yourself as Joseph, then follow his model and be faithful in success and in suffering. Trust God's good plan and live faithfully in both seasons, in the roller coaster of your own life. But ultimately, I think maybe we are called to see ourselves as the world here, that we are to come to the Son, come to the appointed one, to the storehouse of salvation, come to Joseph as our source of life, come to Jesus as our source of life. God's sovereign hand gives the blessing of redemption to all who come to the source of life. God has raised up Joseph there for that moment. God has raised up Jesus for the moment that we live in now. Will you come to him? Will you trust in him? Will you lean on him as the source of your, your salvation? Let me pray. God, I pray for each person in the room. I pray for every person here who has not trusted Jesus as their Savior. I pray that you will help them to see the life that comes by trusting in our good Savior. And for each of us, God, I pray you will teach us to live in light of his provision in light of the life that we have through Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.